AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello, I'm Lale Arikopu, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast for anyone who is curious about the world and excited to explore places both near and far from home. We'll have a lot of varied shows in store for you as we move through 2023. Different regions, stories, moods, and insights from guests who are obsessed with unique approaches to travel. The start of a new year is often a time of reflection. And after the last few challenging pandemic ones, it might also mean reflecting on feelings of loss or grief. For some time, I've wanted to talk to the creator of a podcast called The Order of the Good Death. She's Caitlin Doty, a mortician, the owner of a funeral home in LA, and an advocate for funeral reform. She's toured the world exploring death rituals. It's a quest to discover where death has the most dignity and what we can learn from it. In her 2017 book, From Here to Eternity, Caitlin travels to Barcelona, Mexico, Indonesia, Bolivia and Japan. But why did she pick those places? I think... Primarily, it was where did I have a good opportunity and where was I invited? Mm -hmm. Because with death, you have to be so careful about where you insert yourself, obviously. You know, it's absolutely not acceptable for me to just show up at some random funeral in some far-flung country and be like, hello, everyone. I'm here to just take down the details of your mother's dead body and all the ways that you're grieving, how are you feeling? You know, that would be terrible. That's like absolutely the least appropriate place to insert yourself. So in choosing the places that I did, I always tried to be really careful. Do I have a connection? Do I know a funeral worker or a funeral director? Do I know a family member? Do I have someone who is a close friend who has been to this country many times before and has connections there so I can have these conversation in advance so they know I'm coming, so I'm not in any way just, and it's also, I mean, there's the element of me being just like a white American lady too, kind of showing up and being like, "Mm, I've got my little pen and pad. Let's see what happens. You know, you never want it to have that sort of sense about it. So very much it was kind of where is an opportunity for me to tell a story that's very different 
than the United States and to really, you know, have it to show the the vast diversity of rituals and ways that people see death, both the process and the grieving process around the world. How did you end up knowing people in, in these various places? Is there a funeral director network? <laughs> Do you all have a Facebook group? Paul Kudinaris, who appears several times in the book, is a man who has been doing research and travel with death around the world, mostly as a photographer, for decades at this point. And he has been to some of these places, like, for example, Bolivia, where we saw the Nyatitas, which are skulls that act as kind of like a conduit to the beyond. That's the Fiesta de las Natitas in La Paz, where skulls are brightly decorated to celebrate the dead. It's perhaps a little less well-known to many Americans than other Day of the Dead celebrations, say, Mexico's Dia de Muertos, which was so beautifully captured by Venezuelan photographer Isabella Santasola, who spoke to Condé Nast Traveller late last year about her travels around the country. But that beauty can also draw tourists looking for the perfect Instagram shot, sometimes not so respectfully. It makes me think of a place closer to home. I walk past visitors at the 9-11 memorial every day as I go to work at One World Trade Centre, where we record this very podcast. They're gazing into the two deep pools at the memorial site. And sometimes I'll see people leaning backwards or grinning while taking selfies. Is it even possible to be a respectful and responsible tourist at a place that honours so much loss? and for many is a place for grieving? Or is it less voyeuristic at a site that is more of a celebration? I remember being in Mexico and I remember being there for Day of the Dead and just the cemetery just glowing, just absolutely glowing with candlelight and people visiting the graves and decorating the graves and welcoming home, you know, there are babies who die or their spouses who died. And just that kind of space being held for grief and just how warm and friendly and open it felt. Really quite beautiful and something to behold. But I also am aware that, especially in the last kind of more recent years, it seems to have become a thing that Instagrammers and influencers like to time their trips around. And it will frequently crop up in guidebooks. And I'm also conscious that I'm talking about this as a travel editor. Do you think there's a place for those things in guidebooks or do you think they should be left out and not treated within that context? That's a tough one. I have my executive director of the nonprofit that I founded is a woman named Sarah Chavez. And she speaks very eloquently about appropriation around Day of the Dead and her feelings on it. And I think where she kind of comes down on it as it's an amazing educational tool and it, you know, should be shared, but it also shouldn't be like Day of the Dead toilet seat covers and, you know, Panta Muerto sold at Starbucks. And, you know, that's sort of like just capitalist proliferation of all the rituals and things around it. And so when I think about people going down for Day of the Dead, or even those who want to appropriate Day of the Dead, yeah, probably shouldn't do that in the way that you're doing it. But Who's teaching them not to do that? Who's teaching them how to have a nuanced, respectful discourse around death and funerals? No one. They don't know. 
You know, and I guess you could say ignorance is no excuse, but when they come from a society that does not teach them how to act or engage death at all or really understand grief and doesn't give them anything like Day of the Dead, and we shouldn't just steal Day of the Dead and like be like, it's ours now, that's how we grieve. We should have something different that is unique to our own culture. They just don't have like a rubric or more nuanced understanding of what to do in that situation or how to act in that situation or how to appreciate something without turning it into like, you know, it's sort of like almost like going down there and creating an elaborate Instagram is our like religion, you know, (laughs) like is our way that we like grieve or process. And that's really sad. But that is also the reality. So I think I can want to have it change, but also I try and maintain some sympathy for those who do it because they're searching for something that we do not provide them. We look for meaningful rituals in other places so that we can learn from them. Caitlin describes the Japanese ritual of Kotsage during which she observed a family using special chopsticks to pick bones from the ash after a cremation. It goes without saying that these sorts of moments are some of the most private, intimate and vulnerable. So in order to bear witness to these private ceremonies in a respectful manner, she has local researchers to guide her. Some of it was cold calling. Some of it was sort of in Japan, especially. I remember I just got this absolutely wonderful interpreter who just got every single place I wanted to go on the phone and was like, Caitlin Doty's coming. Such and such a day will be there. And I could not believe what she was able to accomplish and and the places that we were able to get in. But I am a terrible go-getter in the sense of calling someone and being like, hey, give me this access. I was going to say, it's very well reported. And if it's any comfort, you're speaking to a journalist that hates talking on the phone. The book is evidence that lots of people welcomed you in. How do you think you managed to gain people's trust? I'm honest about my perspective. And some of it is that I am a practitioner. So I think that does help. I think it helps that I'm not a journalist. I am a a death practitioner by trade. I know the right questions to ask. I'm not going in to these situations being like, so how do you feel about death? You know, like, so death, crazy, right? Is it sad for you? You know, I, I come in already understanding as much as I possibly can, doing as much research as possible. I grew up in Hawaii. I was born and raised in Hawaii. I'm obviously a not a native person to Hawaii. You know, my parents lived there, my grandparents lived there, but I am a white person who was born and raised in Hawaii. But I grew up hyper aware of tourism. When you go to Waikiki, when you go to these places, you understand tourist behavior from a very young age and what is and what is not acceptable and what is, you know, for lack of better words, sort of cringy or over the line. I am hyper, hyper aware of not being too loud and being as respectful as I can be. After the break, an extraordinary ritual honouring ancestors. 
Hey, it's Chris Klemek here. If you like this show, you might enjoy There's More to That. It's a new podcast from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX where I'll be talking to journalists around the globe, taking inspiration from the Smithsonian Institution's museums and research centers and using insightful reporting to explore the mysteries of the wider world. Plus, every episode comes with at least one conveniently packaged fact for you to share at your next dinner party. So check us out. Subscribe to There's More to That from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX and find out how much more there is to almost everything. It's an intrepid trip to the mountainous region of South Sulawesi, an island at the very tip of Indonesia. We went to this rural part of Indonesia where they mummify their dead and they take them out at this festival called the Manene and they clean their bodies and they clean their clothes and they walk them around and introduce them to people and, and that understanding. And we, we stayed in, with a family in one of these villages and just found out the very last day that in the little house, which are these gorgeous houses on stilts, that just probably 10, 20 feet away had been a mummified corpse of their grandmother sleeping there the whole time. And I had not known that. And for someone like me, that's not like, oh, how horrible. That's like, ooh, another wrinkle, another piece of understanding. Why is she there? And they let us come visit her and and bring her some offerings because bringing her some cookies and cigarettes or something that she would want, even though she's been dead for a year. It's really great that you brought up that particular experience in Indonesia because when I was preparing for this interview, I was actually reading that passage. And towards the end of that account, you, as you're leaving and you note that you were asked to not tell anyone about the place that you'd visited, that you started to fear that you had become somewhat of a voyeur and you reference a tourist that you had seen at a funeral. Would you read it for us? This is from the portion of my book, From Here to Eternity, where I have visited South Sulawesi, and I am here for the Manene, which is a ritual where the mummified dead are removed from their small grave houses and cleaned. When we arrived at the site, almost 40 bodies had been removed from their house grave and lined up in rows on the ground. Some were wrapped in brightly colored cloths, some were in slender wooden coffins, and some were wrapped in cartoon quilts and blankets. We're talking Hello Kitty, SpongeBob SquarePants, and various Disney characters. The family moved from body to body, deciding whom to unwrap. Some were unknown. Nobody remembered exactly who they were. And some were top priority. A beloved husband or daughter whom they missed and couldn't wait to see again. A mother unwrapped her son, who had died when he was only 16. At first, all that could be seen was a crooked pair of feet. Hands emerged and seemed well enough preserved. Men on either side of the coffin pulled gently on the body, testing to see if they could lift it without the body crumbling. They managed to stand him vertical, and though his torso had been preserved, his face was skeletal excepting his teeth and thick brown hair. 
His mother didn't seem to mind. She was ecstatic to see her child, even for a moment, even in this state, and held his hand and touched his face. Nearby, a son brushed the skin of his father, whose face was stained pink from his batik wrapping. He was a good man, he said. He had eight children, but he never beat us. I'm happy. I'm sad, but happy, because I can care for him as he did for me. The Tarajans talked directly to the corpses, narrating their next move. Now I am removing you from the grave. I brought you cigarettes. I'm sorry I do not have more money. Your daughter and family have arrived from Makassar. Now I remove your coat. At the grave by the river, the leader of the family thanked us for coming and for bringing several boxes of cigarettes. He welcomed Paul to take pictures and me to ask questions. In return, he requested, if you see any other outsiders to the village, do not tell them about this place. It is a secret. I flashed back to the boorish German woman at the funeral, cigarette hanging from her mouth, iPad shoved in people's faces, I feared I had become that woman. Our desire to see something we had anticipated for months had driven us where we weren't wanted. The Manene ceremony happens every three years in August but it's only in the last 20 years or so that it's been widely known outside of Indonesia. Is it more disturbing that tourists now show up, or are locals embracing and welcoming visitors? We felt it would be good to ask a local, so we tracked down Satya Chipta, who knows Taraja well. Hi, um, I'm Satya Chipta. I'm an artist from Bali. I was born outside of Bali, which is Lombok, and I grew in many places in Indonesia. I do also travelings a lot around Indonesia. I also work for the festival called Toraja International Festival as an art director and show director. So it is also giving me experience about their culture. Okay. Here's the thing that's interesting in Torajan people. They not bury the dead body to the ground, but they put it in the cave. And some of them, they made a tiny house and they put the dead body inside. They also make offerings and also sacrifice many buffaloes. These buffaloes symbolize their social status in the society. The shaman will call the dead body with uh, some mantra and the dead body can walk by itself. They usually do some mantra and they walk in front of the dead body, and then the dead body behind him. When this happened, nobody can say hi to the dead body. 
not talk to the dead body because if he or she do it, they say it might make them sick or even worse. I don't know exact time when it goes viral. Maybe around 2000, many tourists go to the Toraja, even though it's really hard to get there because it takes like almost a day by bus, and the track is very difficult. Many tourists uh, came to Toraja. Mostly, they are came from Europe. Nowadays, we also can find the guide for the French. And Holland, and also Germany. I can feel the very pure energy and very raw that I feel the ritual originally from there. It's it, this is just my opinion based on my experience because I've seen the the ritual. When they doing this manene ritual, they call the dead body and they clean them all. They change their clothes. They even serve the dead body with the nice food and drink. They just pretend that they are still alive. That's as far as I see. They never scared with the dead body, even before the ceremony. They live with the dead body itself in their house, as they are still alive. I went to the cave where the dead body laid, and also I went to the big tree where the baby's graveyard. They put the dead body of the babies inside the trees. There's so many philosophy, I think, and it. Gives me so many understanding, the new understanding about life and about the ritual, and also about the human long time ago. That kind of palpable physical connection to ancestors who may have died hundreds of years ago is amazing. It might be why so many of us have an attachment to stories about ghosts and spirits. It's a rich source of storytelling. Coming up, a great response to our request for stories about travel adventures involving rituals. If you're enjoying this episode of Women Who Travel, one of the best ways you can support the podcast is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really do read every one. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docu-series, Black Twitter: A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterized the early years of Black Twitter to the social movements. The voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.
Here's a delightful listener dispatch about a house reputed to be haunted by a legendary Irish poet. My name is Tara McClellan McAndrew. And that's as Celtic as it gets. My husband's grandparents were born in County Mayo, and his family would travel to Ireland many times during his youth. And so he wanted to show me Ireland, and I was grand to see it. But I also love ghost stories. My husband is a skeptic, but he was willing to indulge me. So before we went, I researched ghost stories and haunted locations in Ireland. And I found a book written by a man, Peter Underwood, who was the head of the Ghost Club of Britain. And it talked about these locations in Ireland, which were haunted. And we settled on two that I was very excited about. One was St. Michael's Church in Dublin, and the other was Rendell House on the western coast of Ireland in Connemara. So as we were traveling to Renville House, it was literally a dark and stormy night. And we were in a small rental car, of course. We were in a part of the country where my husband wasn't familiar with. And it was rather desolate. And all of a sudden, the alarm light on the car goes off. And we thought, oh, this is it. You know, is the car going to break down? Is it going to blow up? And we literally didn't know what to do. The rain was getting more intense now. And so we thought, okay, let's just push through. So by the time we got to Renville House, we were pretty stressed. And we drive into this nice little lighted drive. And there's a sign in white that says stress-free zone. (laughs) And we thought, okay, all right, we've made it. And it was surrounded on two sides by water. On one, it was surrounded by the ocean, the West Coast, and on another, I believe it was a lake. And it was kind of isolated. So it was the perfect setting for a spooky, spooky story. What I had read beforehand was that William Butler Yeats had done seances there to try to contact the spirit that allegedly haunted Renville House. And he felt he'd made success. He felt he'd contacted him. And I believe found that the man had committed suicide or something like that. And then allegedly the accounts were that after Yeats died, he haunted the inn as well. So when I booked the reservation for the hotel, I asked for the haunted room. So the first night we were there, my husband decided he was going to set up his camera because even though he's a skeptic, he wanted proof. The accounts that I had read about the alleged hauntings of Renville House talked about a tall man appearing and that this man had appeared to women in a mirror. And so I definitely wondered about that as I was in the room and I think I didn't look at the mirror very much. (laughs) What an irony. I went there for an experience and I was terrified of having one. 
Well, nothing happened the first night. It was lovely. We were exhausted. We slept fine. The second night was a little different. It was a very dark room. The whole inside of the inn was dark, was wood. It had a lovely peat fireplace. Our room was very dark. I don't know if I'd noticed it so much the night before. And I have a very active imagination. And I'm also a little bit scared of ghosts, even though I love hearing ghost stories. So I'm lying in bed and I wake up and my bladder is killing me. I have to go to the restroom, which is only 10 feet away, right? 10 feet away in this little room. But I'm terrified to go. (laughs) And so I'm battling with myself. Put your big girl pants on. Do not wake your husband up just to watch you walk to the bathroom. You can do this. So I sat there, got up my courage, felt so proud of myself for doing that all by myself. And then my husband said, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. He was awake the whole time. He knew the battles I'd been going through. Well, What was so interesting was the next morning, he told me that after that, he woke up during the night. And this is so unlike him because he is a skeptic. He does not believe. He woke up during the night with a very uneasy feeling. And he said it felt like a pressure on his chest. He said he described it as a presence, like he felt like we weren't alone. And that had been one of the reports of the hauntings, the alleged hauntings here. And my husband has never, ever had anything like that happen before or since. I'm from Springfield, Illinois, and I think the states are less accepting of paranormal phenomena, all right? Ireland has a reputation and a history of being more, of embracing that potential side of their land and their people and their ancestors. And so I felt that if we were going to encounter something paranormal anywhere in the world, our chances were better in Ireland and the people might be more accepting of it. Even still, I didn't want to talk about it with others because I still felt, I guess, a bit stigmatized based on my culture. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. I was amazed because it seemed like every corner we turned around, there was a ruin a bit of a castle, an own stone. In Ireland, ruins are as common as McDonald's are here. And they literally take them for granted like we take our McDonald's for granted. So the atmosphere lends itself to this mystery, this intrigue, this thinking that maybe the veil between the present and the past is much thinner than we think. Tara told us that she read ghost stories as a child. So I was fascinated to know where Caitlin Doty's interest in death began and how she moved into the funeral business. Well, as I said, grew up 
in Hawaii, born and raised. And I actually had a quite horrible experience when I was young, about eight or so, where at my local mall in Hawaii, a child fell from the balcony while I was there and heard the child hit the ground to what I assume was their death. It's quite, quite horrible. And it really, really affected me when I was young. It, you know, made me develop rituals to try and stave off death. They probably were akin to obsessive compulsive rituals. And it just made me really, really terrified of death. And I didn't really have the understanding to, at that age, to know that if I had lived in a different culture, maybe I wouldn't have had that kind of fear or isolation around death that a lot of children in the United States have. And so I was also interested in death as I got older, but I went to University of Chicago and I majored in medieval history and my focus was on death and dying. And it was actually on the witch trials, but I did a lot with like the late medieval macabre and, you know, the dancing skeletons and representations of death. And when I graduated from college, I was living in San Francisco and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Was I going to go back to grad school? What was my plan? And I got a job at a crematory. And I think that when I first was applying, it really was to be like, wow, I'm going to get closer to real death and how it happens. I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the funeral industry. And I don't mean I love the funeral industry. I immediately saw myriads of problems with the funeral industry and how it runs and and how it's so based in capitalism and how it's kind of divorced us from death as a culture. And I saw all of that happening. But at the same time, to be able to actually understand death in a real way and to be able to combine the theory and the actual practice of working with the dead bodies, it was just absolutely transformative for me and fascinating to see. And I just could not imagine. That was when I was 23, so looking back on it now, I was pretty young. I'm, I'm 38 now, and that's I've never left this work since then. So my entire adult life has been this, and it's changed more in the years from a very you know active funeral director role to now, I would say, the majority. I owned a funeral home, but the majority of what I do now is more advocacy. You know, when I think of one of the things that is kind of my main advocacy points, it's always been hang out with the dead body. Because when you hang out with the dead body, you can normalize it. And that is where the humor comes from. You know, yeah, it's strange. It's kind of uncanny to have some people living and one person is absolutely checked out and they're gone. But that contrast is where the humor is allowed to be. It's not disrespectful to feel feelings and be happy and sad and feel all the emotions around a dead body, that dead body is the conduit that allows all those emotions to come in. And so I think as myself, yeah, I'm a, I'm a naturally humorous person, I'd like to think and try. But more than that, it's that I believe that one of the things that has allowed the funeral industry to keep death behind closed doors and make it very exclusive and very only these certain practitioners can do it and charge you this money for it is because that kind of friendly, humorous, open dialogue and relationship has been suppressed. 
Creating a dialogue with people about their own rituals and ceremonies can help us question our taboos, our rigidity, and reflect back on ourselves, which is really what all great travel experiences should be about. Next week, I'm talking to Chef Tanya Holland about her take on soul food in California and how migration from the South to the West has infused her interest in food history. See you then. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hanna, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.